All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. What's up, y'all? This is QLS Classic, and we are literally talking all that jazz with master musician, producer, songwriter, James Dume. Uh, we talk about his life journey, growing up in the Heath household, rubbing shoulders with all the jazz greats, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis, going in the creative process of writing music and also explaining the origins of his name. Uh, we hope you enjoy part one of this two-parter with James M. Tume from October 2017. This is QLS Classic. Suprema, Suprema Roll Call. Suprema, Suprema Roll Call. Suprema, Love in the house. Yeah. That's not surprising. Yeah. My sign is artichoke. Yeah. With asparagus rising. Roll call. Ah! Suprema. Ah! Su- 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 Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. My name is Fonte. Yeah. And I can't stop, won't stop. Yeah. Like E or you. Yeah. Are the key to my love lock. Roll call. Oh, Suprema. Suprema roll call. I love Erto. Yeah. And Diodato. Yeah. But this guy here. Yeah. He played with Gato. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. I'm unpaid bill. Yeah. You know who you are. Yeah. Don't let it hold you down. Yeah. Reach for the stars. Roll call. Oh, Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema, su, su, Suprema roll call. Don't be concerned. Yeah. Boss Bill's return. Huh, yeah. Oh, Vacation was great. Yeah. yeah. Time off well earned. Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. <laughs> Suprema roll call. I haven't been Suprema. on the show for like a month. Suprema roll call. You. Yeah. Me. Me. Oh, Lord. Yeah. yeah. And he. Yeah. What we gonna do, baby? Roll call. <laughs> Suprema. Okay, yeah. Suprema. 
Suprema roll call. That was like your turn. Suprema roll call. My name is Willie. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. My sign is Artichoke. Yeah. With a green pea rising. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Suprema. Suprema roll call. Wow, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another episode of Course Love Supreme. Let's welcome back our boss, Boss Bill. Yeah. Back, boss Bill. Yeah. You it's know I was calling the shots from Europe. So. I, you, okay, but you were gone for so <laughs> long. You also realized that we was, you know, taunting you while you was away. It was definitely while the cats away. You, you really think I cared? <laughs> I was in Amsterdam. You think I was thinking about this show? <laughs> How was Amsterdam, Bill? I don't remember. Good answer. That means good. it was good. Good, good answer. Amsterdam. Good answer. Yeah. Um, yeah, welcome to another episode of Quest Love Supreme. Uh, we got the Team Supreme here. We got Boss Bill, Unpaid Bill, yeah. uh, Fontigolo, and It's Lightyear. We, 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 we <laughs> com- I said Zay. Yeah, we, we, we decided to commit on a name that's consistent, and this is the second week in a row that <laughs> it's we're calling you It's Lightyear. <laughs> um, our distinguished <clears throat> guest... <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. And we got sugar. <laughs> Steve, don't take it personal. I'm sorry, man. No, I'm right, in, right you here. You know we're best friends, man. Okay. It's Gato. Well, I mean, looking right at me. I know. <laughs> that was well played, Steve. Okay. Uh, our distinguished guest today, ladies and gentlemen, uh, has has achieved a lot in in the world of jazz, in the world of pop music, and in soul music, and R&B. And uh, I guess inadvertently hip hop as well, you yes, know. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Um, he has had his 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 history is, is just a who's who of of history. <laughs> <laughs> maybe 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 what? I went to Amsterdam. <laughs> I don't know. It sounds like it. it sounds like it. Yeah. Uh, well, stay lady, out of damn cream. Yes, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. Uh, the incomparable uh, James M. Toomey to yes. Quest Love. Oh, yes. Thank you very, very much. Woo, woo. Man. It's Thank honor, you it's an very honor much. to be here, man. Thank Th- you so much. Thank you. We we know you have stories in history. We are live in Electric Lady Studios right now. Yep. You were about to tell us you, you've been here a few times. Man, that's the, I, that was, I think the first time I was in here was like 74. Wow. Uh, I, I've been here like, I can't remember. You know, jazz, a lot of jazz records were done here in the 70s. No, no. Uh, I think the last time I was here was um, with Bilal. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, with, with my son Fah. Yeah. It's something about this studio that makes artists forget what, who they were with. Right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's why he hears the same question. He was like, I was here. Like my man just quoted, I come in here, I look up there, Gato. Yeah, that was my, yeah, that was my man. So are you, you know what, not many people know that you are a Philadelphian. South Wait, Philly. can I ask something? Yes, does sir. South, does Philly know that you're a Philadelphian? <laughs> you know what? That's a great question. Um, most people don't know that. Although I've always made that clear, brother. Born and raised in South Philly. I left when I was 18 to go to, to college in Pasadena. But um, South Philly, man. Yeah, but are you are you even in the... Um, the, the Nothing. Philly? I never got any record. <laughs> On the Walk of Fame? The, the Walk of Fame? Got one? No, no, never. I will. That's fucking crazy. <laughs> Listen, wait, wait, wait. I'll, I'll, I will probably. 
I'm not playing devil's advocate because you know if you're if you're on a border committee like that, I would hope to think that you would do your thorough research. But I don't. I mean, based on that, you don't do that much press or no, a lot of press. No, brother. And I'm pretty much a, a, a sponge for this type of information. I truly didn't know that until maybe you know three, four, five minutes ago. Wow! <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. But you know what's deep about that, brother? That's why I got into y'all when I heard that y'all was from Philly. Wow! The roots. Really? Yes, sir. It makes sense now. Yeah. So you were born in South Philly? Where? Uh, 1526 Wharton Street, right across the street from Barrett Junior High. I went to Overbrook High. Overbrook. Yes, sir. What what year did you go to Overbrook? Um, damn, you're getting deep. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I went. I graduated in '66, so I think was that '62. Because remember, back then high school started in tenth grade. Okay. You know, you had junior high, right, and then high. So yeah, and I went to Overbrook because uh, I went to school. I was a swimmer, mm-hmm. and over in South and uh, Southern didn't have a swimming team, and my uncle lived in the. Uh, Right around the corner from Overbrook, so I used his address wow. and commuted every day. It's weird you say Southern because my era of Southern was like Joe Clark's Lean On Me Southern. Oh, right, right. <laughs> Matter of fact, West Philly High School is the same way, like, you know. Back in back in those days. But was it cool to go to Southern if you wanted to? Well, you know, it wasn't that many bloods. Really? You know, it was a whole, you got to remember, South Philly wasn't what it was. I mean, back then, I think my, my family, when we moved there, um, we were probably about the second family, black family that was in that area. What did your folks do? Uh, well, let me let me get this. That's a great okay. question. Okay. Uh, my biological father is is uh, Jimmy Heath, the great Jimmy Heath. Yes, yeah, sir. Yeah. And um, of the of the Heath brothers, my uncle was Percy. My uh, other uncle's Tootie, mm-hmm. uh, Kumba. The father that raised me okay. was a was was a great pianist named uh, James Hengates Foreman. Uh, he played with uh, Bird, he played with Dizzy, he played with uh, Lester Young, you know. Mm, okay. And as a matter of fact, Billy, when he was Billy, Billy Holiday, paid for my parents' wedding, when my mother wow. and my father. What? Were yes, sir. Wow. <laughs> Dinah Washington was my, is my sister's godmother. My, my sister's passed, but Dinah, Whoa. yeah. Whoa. Are we gonna go there, brother? <laughs> <laughs> give, give, Look, give me I'm, all I'm 70 years old, but I've been in this thing, man. When I was 10 or 11, I'll just briefly say this. I remember sometimes being at the table, dinner, there's Dizzy Gillespie, there's Thelonious Monk, there's Coltrane. I'm not gonna say I knew how hip that was, but I knew I was in some special shit. What was the dinner conversation like with those kind of people? I was nine, man. (laughs) (laughs) I just knew it was like, wow. You know, and as I got older, the deep part is that I ended up playing with some of these people. When did you appreciate it? The intellect and the humor. One of the funniest people in the world was Miles Davis. And a lot of people don't, because you know. You see him as just a serious guy all the time. Look, man, funniest cat in the world. All jazz cats are funny. I think Dave Chappelle, uh, uh, you cats were played on it. I think when he had that block party, Mm -hmm. and I saw him sit down, and he started playing around midnight. I said, Lord. And he was talking about the humor of Monk and timing. Mm -hmm. No, man, it it was very special. Uh, Sonny Rollins, I played with all these cats. When did you, I'm sorry. When, I, I, I okay, just wanted to add this while I'm like I'm old. So I get let me, hey, let me go ahead, take it out. Go take ahead. it out. Take it out. 
My father, Jimmy Heath, and, and myself are the only father's son, historically, that ever played with Miles. Father played and the son played with Miles. And when you, when you were with Miles, what were you playing? Percussion. You played percussion. But I, was, I also played, you know, obviously I didn't write songs or score, <laughs> but I, I'm a keyboardist. Oh, okay, gotcha. So can I ask, uh, well, first of all, for, for the Heath Brothers question. Yes, sir. Because they mean a lot to us for another reason. <laughs> <laughs> Who was playing? Who was playing uh, Kalimba on Stanley Cow? That was Stanley oh, Cow. Wow. Sienna Malone. Yeah, Sienna Malone. Okay, so that even makes more sense. Yeah, keyboardist. <sighs> Do you care to elaborate for the people that that don't listen to Nas? <laughs> no, I don't care to. Welcome back, Bill. Welcome back. Welcome back, Bill. Okay, Thanks, okay. Bill. So basically, uh, uh, for hip hop heads that care about the artist sampling uh, a well-loved Heath Brothers song called Smiling Billy um, was sampled by Nas. Uh, Q-Tip sampled it on Nas's One Love. And so... And the Beat Nuts also sampled it. And the on, Beat, uh, of course, yes, the Beat Nuts as stop. well. Yeah. But More Stanley you know. Cow, I didn't... I, yes, I. that's... That one I didn't know. Right. I didn't know that he was in, in, yes, in the crew. And I didn't know they, they were from Philly. But I was saying that when these luminaries are like coming to your house and, and just hang with you, no one, yeah, no one appreciates it when they're young. Right. I did. But I was saying, like, so you instantly knew and appreciated it? Like I said, I'd be, I'd be lying to say that young. I just knew it was something special. I knew it was something special. And um, sometimes the cats would stay with it, like if they were working Philly, like Sonny Stitt would live with us for that week. Mm. And I remember one day waking up, he was in the backyard practicing playing alto. Barry Harris, a great jazz pianist, stayed with us. He's with Cannonball back then, and they'd come and play. I was going to the clubs when I was 14 and 15. I couldn't buy no drink, but I, you know, Cass knew me, you know, <laughs> said, you know, give, give a little, little punk a, a Coke or something, you know, but uh, I used to go there and hear Youssef at Peps and the show, but oh yeah, man. So what was the, okay, so what, describe the, the, the Philly cabaret music scene. Like what was it? Where could you where could you go see? Uh, what was the typical lineup like in, in in to see these shows? Well, you know, there were, and especially in well, back in them days, every city had a ton of jazz clubs, and that's where the you know obviously you know this you know as, as, as well as I do. That's where you went to hear the music. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until Miles came along that jazz started breaking on the concert. You know, you go pay. Money and sitting in the, in the, you know, Lincoln Center, you know, mm -hmm. and, and places like that. But the clubs, man, you know, that's where it was. So and it was the crowds were so hip. The bebop audience was as hip as the cats on stage. Because you had to know, you know, you wasn't you wasn't hip if you didn't have the new Coltrane. You know, I'm talking. I'm in junior high school, man. I couldn't wait when you know, Milestone and Kinda Blue came out, and I used to study every solo and I would hum them. That was my introduction to this music. So at your t at your time when you were coming up, jazz was like the pop music of your time. You Probably dig? the real hip hop. Maybe. Right. You <laughs> right. dig? It was that, and I'm also growing up with Frankie Lyman in the teenagers. Oh, Why do fools fall in love? So it's the birth of black R&B and, and this whole youth, you know, it was WDAS, Georgie Woods, mm -hmm. Man With The Goods, you know, 
Every night I'm listening to that. Now, let me, this is a funny story. And if I'm talking too much, y'all come. No, 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 no. This is what yeah. we want. So <laughs> normally yes, we talk, talk over more. you. <laughs> please, please talk more than a minute. So, so dig. <laughs> See, one thing you got to remember back then, growing up in a jazz household was almost like, and listening to R&B was almost sacrilegious. You dig? Uh, it's like, you know, people who grow up in the church and they go into funk and R&B. Oh, wait a minute, you know. So I used to have to listen to my stuff real low, you know, at night. But I have the trend that we had transistor radios. I have it under the pillow. And I used to hear all these cats, man, you know, Georgie Woods. And back then, you know, it wasn't this like if he dug a record, and Kenny Gamble told me this. He said, Man, sometimes him and Huff would cut a record and run right up to the station and drop it on him, and he played four times in a row. Cause that's how you broke records back then. Wow. So, you know, so I'm growing up with jazz. And the birth of R and B. Slight, slight confession time. Yes, sir. And it's kind of weird. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm your story in reverse. So for all the Prince folklore to- stories I've ever told about being on punishment from Prince and yeah, parents, yeah, being all that. Actually, Prince wasn't first. I mean, Prince was prevalent, but the very first time that my parents pulled an intervention on a mirror listening to secular salacious pop music was I I had flim flammed and you know I asked my mom like yo buy me the juicy fruit oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh god you know I was like I was in California I asked my mom like, yo you give me juicy fruit 45 and she was like no that's that's a lollipop everywhere. No, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. and then I tried to do one on dad, like dad, and then they did that. Wait, didn't you already ask your mother? And what you gonna come and ask me? So before they issued the you're on punishment joint, then I kind of snuck. I had a, I had an older cousin that was sort of like an aunt, mm. yeah. and we were just in together in the mall. And, you know, she she brought me like two forty. She brought me a New York, New York by Grandmaster Flash and Fury Spot, mm. and then just in passing. Like, I just grabbed a Juicy Food 45 and, and brought it and thought I was cool. Then I got caught with it. My punishment was jazz. Oh, wow. Like, oh. this is where, I don't know if my dad's version of exercising it out of me, <laughs> but this is where she made, I, like, I could listen to nothing but Coltrane for, like, a week. So. What a punishment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I was mad. It really, it really wasn't until I like went to high school and got it. Right, right. So all the knowledge that I had to impress Chris McBride and all those cats was based on all the jazz punishments. <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks to M2, man. Oh, man. <laughs> and I'm a jazz artist. Right, exactly. <laughs> so it was like in reverse. But I mean, were you? I know that the 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 from the Motown angle, I know like a lot of the Funk Brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of look down, right? Jazz cats that look down on pop music, and all right, let's just make this check real quick, and you know, get out the way. But this is really not an art, right? That sort right. of thing. That was real. But I mean, where you're like to sneak to listen to it? Was it just like they just thought it wasn't an art form, or it was just like well, like how do they view James I Brown? Said, how do they? Oh well, look, James was God everywhere. I mean, even in 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 a jazz in a jazz setting, it was something about James the funk. He was under it's it's that wasn't about the music. That was about you know your DNA. Yeah. Um, 
But I want you, you brought up Juicy Fruit. Can I give you a quick story? Everything got a story. Tell me. Juicy Fruit, when I brought it to the record company, Epic, they didn't want to release it. What? I had to argue. Well, you know, you can lick me everywhere. Now, that's... <laughs> Now that's like that's PG, yeah. It's stuff I hear now, you know. <laughs> but they didn't want to release it. They were afraid of the lyric, that one line, which ironically became the line everybody waited to sing along with. But they did not release it for daytime radio. They only released it for the midnight shows. After one week, they were getting so many calls. And this is one thing that I wanted to say, when I wrote that, the beat wasn't the main thing to me. Uh, it was what I was trying to do with the chords and the colors and the melody and the inversions. So I'm tripping on, oh yeah, I think we stumbled on something. And I, the only thing I felt about that, and that was the last song I cut on that record. I was finished with the album. And, some, and I walked in and we finished that night and there was a, a, a drum machine there. The, um, Lindrum? The Lindrum. And I told the, you know, I told the engineer, man, put this that up. So I went, doom, tika doom, kikum, kak, doom, tika kum, kikum, kum, kak. I said, wow, I like that. And he said, yeah, let's quantize it. I said, no. I said, I want to humanize technology. Not technology makes it, because when something's exact, that's a, yeah. that's a drag to me. Yeah. And especially as, 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 as a drummer, I wanted to lean a little bit. So if you listen to that beat, it's slightly off on purpose because it feels human. But wow. they didn't want to release it, but they were forced to release it. I, I can't recall this. Someone told me a story. Someone very prominent is on Juicy Fruit, and they told me the story. Like, hey, I'm a, how many musicians were on Juicy Fruit? Uh, Someone I know. The rhythm section. Uh Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, the rhythm section, obviously, uh, was myself, Philip Phil, Raymond Jackson. Philip Phil, keyboards, Ray I'm keyboards, bass. Raymond's bass, um, and it's a drum machine, so ain't no drummer. Uh, and, of course, Tawatha's lead. On that record, on Juicy Fruit, Freddie Jackson. He's part of the, you know, Juicy. Yeah, Freddie. What? Tawatha brought Freddie to sing, I think he's on two songs, the first time I met him. He's on Juicy Fruit. And that might be the story. I'm, I'm thinking that might be. Oh, wait a minute. And, 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 and when I did overdubs, okay, you're making me go back. Uh, the system. Yeah, David I, Frank. I brought in David Frank? Yeah. David Frank. Maybe it's David Frank. Okay. Bernie I had World. him double the guitar. Wait, Bernie World? Yeah. Bernie. No, no, he's not. Bernie's on the Juicy Fruit album. Not, not, oh, not, not on the, the song. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, Bernie. Me and Bernie, you know, went way back. I used, Bernie's on a Stephanie. I first got me and Bernie first hooked up, you know, everybody. We was all P Funk, you know. And uh I used Bernie on a on a Stephanie Mills album and we were so we were very tight. Um But yeah, David do do doom do do doom doom. It's a guitar playing it and I wanted him to double it with a synth sound. Oh, okay. And okay. Mick is playing on the bridge. Do 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 doom 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 doom. That's that's Mick on the Really? Guitar. Yes, sir. Oh man, it's, it's like the all star, all star eighties lineup. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so with the system, that was a group. Yeah, right? system, yeah. So with your jazz lineage, yes, sir. And you making your entry uh, 
on professional records. Can you describe what what the atmosphere was like, especially to make your entry on on the corner? Which which why y'all hit, right. hitting below the belt? Oh my god. <laughs> no, but see, okay, yeah, let me let me explain. We'll, we'll go there. See, critically speaking, um On the Corner is one of those records that at the time when released by Miles Davis, um it caused a major similar to the Civil War that <laughs> hip hop had no, I mean hip hop hip hop heads have had civil wars over particular albums by their favorites mm -hmm. in which you know, traditionalists are like, no, you got to stick with the tradition. And that was a Star Wars, brother. And I, <laughs> you know, but what what happened is t t that time goes on, that time goes on, and you know, for all those critics that said this is the the whatever the worst piece of shit yeah, that Miles yeah, ever released, Downbeat's review of it was was horrible. Then suddenly, in thirty forty years, another generation of critics come along and they proclaim this the best thing ever. Yeah. So I want you to, for me, what were, what was your family's feelings of what Miles was getting into and bringing you into and, and jazz heads around your way that are like, oh, that, that's not real jazz. Or real, like, what was the, the feeling? What, what, what was going on? Well, first of all, let me, let me give you quickly, just a quick backdrop, mm -hmm. how I joined Miles. Uh, I came to New York, and uh, I was living in Newark. I, I, uh, Imamu Baraka uh, asked me to come back and help on the Ken Gibson campaign. That was the first black mayor of Newark in 1971. While I was here, I was here for two weeks, and I got a call from McCoy Tyner asking me to record. That was my first. I did about six albums with McCoy. But then I was with Freddie Hubbard, and Miles came to hear me. We were playing the Village Vanguard. And uh, you were playing percussion with yeah, with Freddie, time? yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I was like, yeah, 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 I was, yeah. yeah I mean, <laughs> no, I was just trying to know what instrument. I didn't know because you play no, keys no, yeah, too, yeah, so yeah. I yeah but because that, that's that's where I, where I cut my bones when, in in, ja in the jazz world. Gotcha. You know, got to all that man. But uh, I'm I'm probably on about sixty albums. But I just it, I came at the right moment. Pharrell Saunders and all these cats we were working. So when I joined Miles. He calls me for the first session. It's on the corner. Now, I was, I had already done an album called, uh, two. One called Kawa Eater, which was my uncle album, my uncle's album, but I wrote all them, he asked me to write all the music, and I did my own record called Al Cable Line, Land of the Blacks. All avant-garde acoustic music. I walk in with Miles. I was infatuated. The world hated it. You're right. They said it was the worst piece of shit. And one of the reasons was Miles was so far ahead. Here's a cat playing wah-wah on the trumpet. Man. I'm talking about 1972, man. And um, everywhere we played, there was two vibes. The audience, which was like, I never heard nothing like this. And jazz critics who, I had a, a debate on, on, it's on YouTube with, one of the jazz critics. Stanley Krause. Well, I didn't know <laughs> I was going to say, was it Stanley? Go <laughs> in. Yeah. And, uh, Stanley but, knock you out, Krause. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you get knocked out, you know. <laughs> yes, indeed. But uh, 
They had never been challenged. And I was coming from, that band had been through so much. And, and we all had this. Because if you didn't have that with Miles, every night you're going somewhere where you don't know. Now, sometimes you're going for another planet you might miss. But when you hit, you might be playing two hours, man. But in that two hours, there's like maybe 15, mu 15 minutes that you, you're on another planet, man, literally. This was like, and I know I'm getting like misty with this. But ah, go in. We, we there with you? This cat, man, is the greatest that we ever produced. And when he died, man, I cried like a baby, man. Yeah. And, um, and I still miss him. I miss him more today for the wisdom that he dropped on me. I remember when I was with, we were, the first tour I was with him in 71 was in Europe. Keith, uh, Jared on piano, keyboards, I mean. Uh, Gary Botts on alto. Uh, Ndugu Chancellor on, on, on drums. Michael Henderson. Bass, yes, sir. And um, I did a solo. I used to close the show. And man, you know when you play and you rocked it, or standing old, and I'm walking off. You know, I'm pissing vinegar. Yeah. <laughs> and this voice walks up. That wasn't shit. <laughs> My whole balloon said. And, and Miles said, man, look, man, stop playing what you know. Start playing what you don't know. Now, first of all, how do I even navigate that? What do you mean? Then I figured it out. Stop using that same street to go where you're going. Use another avenue. There's different ways to go to that same destination. And cliches are death traps. Musicians know, you know that, like a singer, let me hit this high note you know, and rock, you know, or, yeah. oh, and they go, oh, no, don't do that. So I had to learn to approach everything backwards. Don't do what you did. He also told me things like, silence is sound. Mm. He said, space is everything. He said, and we had many talks, because you know, it was a father-son thing too. He said, um, if you got 10 possible notes for a melody, he said, you have to learn how to abbreviate. He said, take the one note that implies the other nine. Now, all this stuff I apply years later. Wow. You know? Take one note that implies, implies the other nine. You don't have to use the other. He said, abbreviation is the secret to the music. He said, people talk in paragraphs. They play in paragraphs. He said, no, learn how to play in quotations. Ah. <laughs> you know, you dig? <laughs> yeah, one, yeah, one thing I was always curious because yes, you're one, you're the first person I've ever met that actually played with Miles. Yes, sir. What was it about him that it, he seemed to me he was the greatest because it seemed like he made band leaders. Like everyone that came out of his crew went on to do their own thing and start their own crew and become legends in their own yes, right. Sir. What was it about him that you think that was able to shape people in that way? He was that cat. Sometimes there's no verbal explanation. Some people are this, that's that dude all over the world. I was gonna ask, does he, did he communicate a lot? Because the way that when I watch those old Mantra Jazz Festival videos and stuff, the way that he's sort of walking amongst you guys, I feel like there's a communication going on that isn't words. And see, that's, that's a great point. Now, the other thing that he did if you see you know, any of those clips on YouTube, and thank God for YouTube because the new generation would have never had a chance to see what the bullshit the critics were writing. YouTube really brought that music to the forefront for younger people. 
he took me, usually, you know, percussionist, the hand drummer's in the back, maybe next to the drummer. If you notice all them videos, I'm standing next to him. And our communication was nonverbal. I could finish the phrase, I knew where he would go. And um, I remember one time we played somewhere and uh, one of the reviews said, Miles was playing some jungle voodoo music. What I was into, yeah, he's right for the wrong reason. (laughs) This is voodoo. But uh, Miles just always knew. Like sometimes you get into that music and you get lost. I remember one time we played, uh, uh, we were in Colorado, and we had a set. The the club was in in, in the basement of the hotel. We played a three-hour set. And this is the honest to God truth. I experienced this. I felt levitation on the stage. The thing became so organic. All we did was look at each other, everybody. And when we finished, we got on the elevator. Nobody said a word. Miles laid down on the floor. We all got off on different floors. Nobody said good night. No, we got. <laughs> that's the kind of that's the kind of stuff, man. That wow. How would you? I don't know if this makes sense. But this no, it, it makes sense. sense. Yeah, it makes nah, sense. It makes sense. Especially I mean, to me. He was a he's notoriously known as the greatest town scout. Oh yeah. In jazz history, you know, like he he could see. He knew. Yeah. He knew and what the, he he knew the other dudes. He gave you, a, and it's a deep thing. He gave you the canvas, but he let you paint. Yeah. Was that the first and the last time you had that feeling? So, that levitation. It's only time. Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be black today, told from a unique black perspective. From Bobby Schmurder to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. 
I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. So do you, the, the musicians that are still alive within that collective, when y'all see each other, or is it still that connection because y'all had that, that moment that probably nobody ever had? Okay, confession. Mm-hmm. On behalf of the group, mm-hmm. Reggie Lucas, who was my partner, yeah. uh, Michael Henderson, the baddest motherfucker that most people never understood, Pete Cozy on guitar. Okay. Mm-hmm. Al Foster, monster drummer. I said Michael, mm-hmm. Dave Liebman. We had a couple of sacks, but Dave was was great. But before Dave, it was a cat named Carlos Garnett. Okay. Um, he's on the uh, live at the Philharmonic. Miles never told any of us what to play. But he also, I remember when I ran into her, to, to Herbie, and Herbie was telling me, yeah, he said, Miles never told and he said, and he said, Tooms, let me ask you a question. How often did y'all rehearse? And I said, <laughs> That's what I was gonna ask. No, baby. I can count a few. <laughs> and I was a stickler. You know, I was that young cat. Man, we need to rehearse more. I remember I stepped to him. He gave me that look. He said, Motherfucker, I pay you to rehearse on stage every night. <laughs> Dress rehearsal. And I dug it. <laughs> I, 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 you Wait, did. So, so from a civilian, because I'm a oh. non-musician standpoint, I just, I'm really got to understand. So you get on stage, he starts playing, then what? No, no, no. We knew we had just what I call rehearsal. thematic fibers. There were themes, and we knew like uh, black satin. He would just start these fibers, and we just go. Okay. And what he meant by I pay, you re- I pay you to rehearse every night, he said, I never want to overcook the meal. Mm. And you start getting. <laughs> you don't want to get it too perfect. Yeah, so man. You and you start, start working out. Yeah. Again, you Come start on. working out little things that you know work. Yeah. No, no, I don't want that. He didn't want that. That's why I never rehearsed, Steve. <laughs> 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 There's no comeback for that. Just, just, <laughs> just enjoy that little gym I gave you. <laughs> but. Okay, so the 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 sessions that wound up being the on the corner album, yeah, which kind of bled into three or four albums. Yeah, I mean, certainly or surely there were A or B moments you guys would remember and repeat those phrases or oh yeah, like how would you know to start a song and end a song and that sort of. He would play a phrase. After a while, like I said, when something becomes so organic, 
It's just a collective orgasm. Mm -hmm. He would play something, and we knew where it was supposed to go. And it was time to end it. He would step in and play something to lead into the next thematic fiber. We knew the themes. Where that thing went, that, that, was, that was the journey. Wow. I, I also find it uh, not ironic, but almost full circle, that the core of the musicians <laughs> that made uh, On the Corner you know, making the most envelope-pushing, radical jazz music ever, <laughs> turned around and wound up writing the most lush pop music, <laughs> the most digestible, easy-listening pop. Like, was it almost therapeutic that the pendulum had to come on the other side of things? No, and that's great. I never thought of it that way. Was it therapeutic? But all of you, including Lenny White, Herbie Hancock, yeah, right? all, all Miles' greatest disciples. But you know, that was also that period. Don't forget George Duke. Don't forget Stanley Clark. We were all playing jazz. It was, a, it was a generational shift. Now, the one thing I always tell people, if you change because you, you, you're trying to just be with the times, that's adaptation. If you change because emotionally you're committed to the change, that's metamorphosis. So we were, it was all metamorphosis for us. But maybe it was a little therapeutic. We couldn't go no further out, so I guess you had to come in. You had in. to bring it back in, yeah. yeah. But I remember for me, um, it started with The Close I Get To You, you know, and um, and I was going that way, and then I, my bridge was was Eddie Henderson, a, tr a great jazz trumpeter. Oh, we know. Oh, see, <laughs> for hip -hop and actually, right. people think about, I always, I always laugh, I say, man, Juicy Fruit is one of the grandparents of hip hop, you know what I mean? But yeah. Eddie Henderson, my first sample was actually Jay Z. The Inside on, You. Inside, on, you uh, Inside You, which was on uh, uh, A Reasonable Doubt, uh, Coming of Age. Doo -doo. Doo -doo. And, um, Eddie Henderson was my, my, my I, would, I would do albums with him. He always asked me for two songs. And that's where I developed what I call, one thing I tell songwriters, the first thing you need to make sure you, you, you tap into is what is your rhythm? Some people write great ballads. Some people write up-tempo. Find your tempo first. Because when you find your tempo, you don't have to write the other shit. You know what you're good at. That eliminates experimenting. And I knew, oh, man, y'all crazy. Your tempo? I'm sorry. <laughs> just, that's cold. That's cold. That's beautiful. Yeah, but it's, it's for, for that particular project. Yes, sir. Um, who, who, was the, who were the musicians that were? Which, which, which project? Or for the, for the Eddie Henderson stuff. Uh, okay. Inside You, that's me and Patrice Russian playing keyboards. I think she's, I'm playing the- She's uh, playing Rhodes? Yeah, she's playing Rhodes. Of course. I'm playing the acoustic. Uh, 
uh, oh my God, uh, Her- Herbie Hancock's bass player. That's uh, Jackson. His last Paul Jackson. Paul Jackson. Paul Jackson. I, I, it was Herbie's drummer. I forgot his name. Um, Damn, I should know this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and of I, all I, people, Mike I, Clark. Was was that the drummer? He's on the uh, Headhunters. The Headhunters. Yeah. 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 And um, I, I, I think that was it because it was it was just two keyboards and we just overdubbed, you know, the, the strings and the horns. Uh, it's Eddie. Uh, I forgot who's on trombone. Billy Higgins too. Also drumming with you guys, right? Billy uh, no. Higgins? No. I played with Billy, uh, with my father, but uh, okay. not, not... Well, I know that he played with... Uh... No, 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 no. I'm thinking of Eddie Henderson. I'm thinking yeah, of yeah. your Art Former project. Sorry. Damn, Art Former, yeah. Right. Long life. Yeah, we're just going to be... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, how did you... I mean, was... What I'm trying to get to is <laughs> what I'm trying to get to was that was there because the thing the thing that coincides with you guys transitioning to pop music um, was that from a monetary standpoint it was also very lucrative <laughs> and that's that's one of the myths I wanted <clears throat> to dispel because I know that a lot of the downbeat critics were saying that oh Miles playing with the Grateful Dead and do all this stuff like he's just trying to make some money like yeah. forget the art. But if you listen to the music, there's really nothing that digestible about it. It's digestive about it. So, you know, was it a thing of like, okay, well, it's time for us to get paid? And that did you produce the entire Blue Lights in the Basement album? No, was it just that one song? I guess it's the story behind every every one of them songs. (laughs) Yeah, that album. We're doing that album, Bill. Quite frankly, I was like, you know, we had a dinner break. I had been working on. These, these changes, ding, blee, bee, dee, bee, boo, bee, blee, bee, bee. So we take this break, and, and so Reggie's there. I said, Reggie, lay. So we, I, I play it for him, and then he, we put the B section, he puts the B section over and over. I'm recording it. When the cats come back, I just want to make a cassette. I had no name for the song or nothing. We played it. I'm making a cassette. Roberto walks in and said, what's that? I said, the closer I get to you. That was just off the dome. Wow. <laughs> okay? Uh, nothing. This is straight up the truth. And I'm like, and she says, can I record that? I'm like, yes. She said, can I change the key? Yes, any key you want. Oh, wow. We, we cut it that night. Uh, originally, she did it. And then after thinking about it, her and Donnie hadn't done anything in years. Donnie comes in. And it's like, wow. But I want to get to that point. You're talking about the bread. Mm -hmm. Like I said, if you do something because you just want to adapt for that, that's not real. You ain't, that's not from here. I was avant garde acoustic because it was from here. It was metamorphosis. That's where I wanted to go. And uh, it was not looked positively from the jazz cats. I, I had one cat walk up to me. I'm not gonna mention his name. Famous bass player. Go. S- S- Ron. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> and said, man, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. What? You playing this music, you know. And, and you know, man, I said, but you know, one thing, like I said, one thing that you learn with Miles is courage. 
Because if you didn't have courage in that band, you'd have been snuffed under with the stuff they were writing about us. And one another lesson I learned from Miles, when you cross a bridge, burn it. So you can't even go back. Can't go back, yeah. Damn. Chopping all Love the gems. It. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like one liner after one liner. Like, like I'm, 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 I'm interviewing you, but then I, I gotta absorb what you're saying. Like, <laughs> you're right. Burn yeah, the on some Viking yeah. shit. Like, burn, burn the yeah, ships. Burn, 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 burn the ships. Because look, you can always look back. If you don't even allow yourself to have a rearview mirror, you only can look forward. Go forward. Wow. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that. While you think about that, can we talk about the songwriting process as yes, it sir. changes from being a jazz musician to a pop musician? Because I feel like, to me, I was raised on jazz too, and there's a complexity to it, harmonically and or otherwise. And then you go into pop, and people assume that it's less. So what's the transition? What's the metamorphosis there? Jazz, how I approached it, learning how to master complexity. What's the secret to pop music? Mastering simplicity. Yeah. You put it together, it's simplexity. Holy shit. I appreciate it. Thank you. I appreciate it. Now that, you just make it up words. Right? <laughs> simplexity. That's what Webster did, right? All right, so I'm really glad you're here. Spell check didn't like that one. Go ahead. I'm glad you're here to... Because the thing is, is that I still believe that simplicity is the hardest, hardest thing discipline. to do. Yeah. How do you We play? talk about that all the time. But who taught you that? Because even now, like, okay, so the, the, the cats that I deal with and work with now who are pure jazz cats, mm -hmm. I can't beat them over the head enough and tell them, like, yo, that's too much. Too like, good. Like, tone it down a little bit. And, you know, part of it is... Their their pride, if you will, of like, you know, I, I don't want to appear to be too simple or too pop. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's and it, and it's like, yeah, okay. We we now live yeah. in the age of of, of the gospel chops era where right. you got to show off your musicianship yeah. <laughs> to let people know that you're serious. But like, who is there to teach you? These are the, this is the basic fiber of nobody. That's a hard thing to do. Like you just. You can't go from on the corner to the closer I get to you. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yes, you can. I did it. He did it. But you know what? Robert? Getting back, because uh, I did not address what you said. And this is the honest truth, man. We never thought about money. Now, that sounds, oh, yeah, that's some, yeah, right, bullshit. I, I believe no, you. No, I believe no, yeah. you're trying to master an art form, and especially... With jazz cats, we started. You started out. There wasn't a lot of respect mm -hmm. for for R and B. Now, remember. Now, I saw Tony Williams. I studied Elvin Jones. So all this stuff I hear now, man, look, are you kidding? I heard that live. I st actually sat right next to Tony Williams when he was with Miles. I was in the I was in the audience, and it was like. First time I went to hear Elvin Jones. All this stuff for me is regurgitation. And drummers especially did not respect the two and the four. They dismissed it. That's the hardest thing in the world, man. Doom, bap, doom, bap. How do I keep that interesting to you for four or five minutes? Mm -hmm. 
you can look. You can always rely on, like I said, technique. Cause it's sometimes just masturbation, man. I'm gonna show you all this, and I'm into why. Again, Miles, stop talking and playing in paragraphs. Yeah, silence is silence. What's your What's your quotation? What am, What am I taking from it? I, I like. I wish if that was if there was one thing that people learned from me or whatever. Like you know, and cats are always asking me. I try to put that out there, and like it, it's harder to resist today. Like you know, there, there. I've been on a few gospel chop sites where oh they're like, God. "Man, fuck what Questlove said about yeah, you right. know us. <laughs> Why are you always hating old time? Yeah. That sort of thing, <laughs> you know." But uh, yeah, I, I wish that people could learn that lesson that you can get even further by playing less than. I think that comes with age, though. Yes, I'm old. <laughs> no, but that's old your time. shit. Like, I'm just saying, like, when you're young, you know. You, Wisdom, yeah. Well, you're young, you're insecure, so you're doing all that right. shit because you, you're you not really securing what you have. But right. the older you get, you realize you got it, so you don't got to flaunt it. It makes sense. Yeah. How, how was your, um? So how long were you with Miles from on the corner to what? I think about time? four and a half years, something okay. like that, yeah. And then from that point, was that when you went into? Um... Well, when I left Miles, well, Miles stopped. We were playing the gig. And, and and this actually, I didn't finish the statement. I said it's one of the things that we in that the cast in the band we always lament. Herbie had Headhunters came out. Mm -hmm. There was like a tour, national tour set up with Miles and Herbie. Whoa! <laughs> we played two gigs. Miles got sick. We played upstate New York and we played St. Louis. Miles got sick, and that was the night that he stopped. As it turned out, it was going to be for five years. Me and Reggie broke, not broke, but you know, Miles ain't playing. We went on and said, okay, let's, let's really do this. Yeah. Uh, Michael Henderson had established his solo career. Did that I? throw you off a little bit? What? That he was such a velvety singer? Well, wait, he went to Stevie for a second, right? Michael Henderson was with Stevie. He was playing on all that Motown stuff when he was 14, man. He, he was, was with Stevie first, then he went to... Yeah, uh, okay, but okay. But he was, he was the, the heir apparent to James Jameson. Mm. Yes, he was. See, people don't know that. <sighs> Michael Henderson is playing on some of the tracks that came out later uh, on... Uh, oh, man. Damn, I hate this. Old, I, Alzheimer's. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Uh, one of the greatest albums ever... Oh, this is crazy. On Stevie? No, no, no. Uh, what's going on? Okay. Michael played on some of the tracks that weren't released on the original album. Okay. Came out years later. On the reissues? Yeah, man. Yeah. Michael Henderson was that oh, guy. Yeah, 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 listen, yeah. listen to, uh, for those that are, that are able to listen to, uh, what's what's the Stevie live? And um, There's a version of I Was Made to Lover mm -hmm. in which... I feel like that's Michael Henderson's greatest James Jamerson. Michael, man. Michael There's was There's a live version of I Was Made to Love Her. Uh, top of the... Talk of the Town. Talk of the... Yeah, if you listen to Stevie Wonder, Talk of the Town live album, which came out in like 67, um, there's a version of I Was Made to Love Her that is like... It's... it's, it's me it, To me, it's the best live display of Jamerson-esque. Mm, yeah. One finger playing ever. So, but did you know that he had that voice on him or? No, but no, 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 that's bullshit. Yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I remember 
Michael came to my room. We were in Japan. And uh, Santana was there. Me, me and Santana was talking. And uh, Michael came in and, uh, yeah, Santana. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say nothing. It's crazy, man. It's crazy. Santana you know, no, Santana was like, to this day, when Carlos and I see each other, it's almost we get teary. Santana loved Miles, man. And um, so the story, Michael said, man, yo, man, tunes, when you finish, come on up. I want to play something for you. So I go up to his room, and he get, pulls out his bass. Doom, 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 doom. Ah, you are my star He starts singing, <laughs> yes, you are. I said, God. We were in Japan when he wrote that. He was with Miles. Obviously, years later, it comes out with uh, Norman Connors. And that's what launched Michael's career as a solo artist. What was, uh, just as a Philadelphian, mm -hmm. and me not ever seeing any clip of Norman Connors whatsoever on YouTube or anything, what was Norman's stature as a drummer? I mean... He's from Philly. I know he was a drummer. Yeah. I heard him solo once. I think there was a song called So In Love. It was like the middle of side two on that album. But where did he stand in the eyes of drummers? You can tell the truth. No, I, I, I know. <laughs> but you know what? Sometimes silence is more truthful than There you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I kind of skipped something. Why did you never, why did you choose traditional percussion as opposed to a trap drum set to play? It's what touched me. I, I, I say this. The three elements for the creative process is intuition, intellect, and technique. Intuition is first. You don't know why you love the trap. You don't know why you want to sing. You don't know why you want to paint. You don't know why you want to write poetry. It's intuitive. Intellect, once you get into this and you start getting your, you know, a better understanding, now you know why you're drawn to it. Technique is where you sharpen your tools. How time served, how much time you put in. I don't care what I'm hearing. If I can't play it for you. Yeah, don't matter, yeah. So intuition, intellect, and technique. Okay, my, my, my last sort of serious jazz question before we go into your 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 your, your second phase of, of your pop stuff. <laughs> um I always wanted to know, okay, so since Miles was was pushing the envelope. And what envelope? <laughs> there was no envelope. There was no so. envelope. But you know, when he stopped playing in 1975, mm -hmm. there's there's always been this debate, and you know, because you you brought up Stanley Crouch, and I know that a lot of jazz snob snobs kind of eh, kind of scoffed at Stanley for endorsing Winton and the whole let's go back to 1946 bebop mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, what were your feelings on like the the you know like the the David Murray's the 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 M base the kind of the 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 first generation tree post Miles of pushing that envelope because I know that those cats felt like damn like it it was our turn to get the baton next and then Crouch comes in and you know they put Winton in a suit and then suddenly he. Puffies us back to <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to back to 1950 with bebop, like not taking it forward. And I know that you know, with all due respect, I, I understand that Winton is 
a traditionalist, and I, I do believe that there should be whatever torchbearers for whatever people feel that are passionate about their era. Like, I'd be lying to you if I said that, you know, my era of 88 to 99 era hip hop wasn't my, you know, what I'll, I'll champion the most. Right. right. But, I mean, what was your feeling as far as the, the pushing the envelope era of jazz sort of got white or, or washed or whitewashed away into <laughs> where Winton took it in the 80s and... Here's, here's what I felt. It's a great question. It was tracing paper. You know, you ever... Uh, really? <laughs> you just put the tracing paper over something and you just... What's new about it? What was the, the main thing in jazz? Coltrane, everybody pushing that envelope. You just playing, you put, and I'm not just dogging Winton. I'm just saying a whole generation, let's play like we in 1964, and this is hip. That's not hip to me. Because it's been if, done already. I don't care that you can play train solo on giant steps. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> That's train. This this is one of the heavily, in the jazz world, Like this is one of the most heavily debated arguments and the thing is is that i feel like i'm in the middle because because of my age you remember the year that michael jackson won all those grammys mm -hmm. yeah in like 83 84 mm -hmm. well subsequently winton was also pulling that feat he won like five grammys yeah. two for classical three for jazz and um there was a point where i think in 84 my dad was going to ease up on the whole you gotta rehearse five hours a day thing like Okay, he's getting older. He wants to play video games, talk to girls, hang in the ball. Yeah. He was going to start laxing a little bit. And then went and got on stage and says, look, Dad, <laughs> I really just want to thank you for making me practice <laughs> eight to ten hours every yeah, night. And over. my dad heard that shit, and he doubled my verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want you to do seven hours in that basement. <laughs> like, But the thing was is that, you know, to – Paid off, though. Yeah, I mean, but to to a thirteen year old, no, I get you. I not get you. I knowing get you. better, yeah. it's you know, I mean, there wasn't a jazz snob in my life until Rich came along when he was when I was like twenty three. He's uh -huh. like, man, fuck Winton, like he took it backwards and he wasn't pressing the envelope. So I think, but it, isn't it, it also important for people to know? Absolutely, because without Winton, I wouldn't have known about King Oliver and Louis and. But that's when. Jazz started coming out of colleges, brother. That was the beginning of I gotta go. I'm going to Academia. study jazz yeah. at the university, yeah. and I'm versus living playing it. it in the club and living it. Hey man, why do we still listen to Kinda Blue? Miles went to Juilliard in the '40s, and he said I might have went a couple months. I'm hanging out on 52nd Street with Bird and Dizzy. When jazz started coming out of the universities. That's when this shit was, everybody could play the same. Study this solo, play every note in this. Where was it? That's not creative to me. So was Bradford looked at as kind of like the answer? No, he's different. Right, he was like, the, I mean, in that way, Buckshot LaFunk, like stuff, like it was. And I'm not against studying. I'm, I'm yeah. self, totally self-taught. Mm. I don't recommend that. You know? Everybody can't do that. I, yeah, well, so. yeah, I, I was very fortunate. Uh, because I could, I went from playing the writing, putting the band together, then scoring film and television. New York Undercover. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we yeah, we're going to get it. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, so, I'm not. Natalie's. I, yes. <laughs> but 
what are you bringing to it? If you're not bringing, again, I'm, and I'm not castigating the cats who came out of colleges, but just because you come out of college and then the colleges started hiring, my father's taught at, at Queens College, man, for 20 years. Uh, the same thing is happening in the hip hop. They started now. hiring all the jazz cats. Oh, wait a minute. To teach. Wow. Shut up, all of you. Yes, I teach at a college. Shots I'm sorry. fired. Wow. I'm sorry. That wait, just... you teach with me. I wasn't saying wow, it was a bad that's thing. I'm just saying it. Think about it. Think about it. So, Winton was the beginning of that. And I'm not dogging him, but I'm just saying stop saying that you're the torchbearer. I'm not interested in a torch. I've already burned that bridge. There you go. Man. Wait, before you get into the pop, Life I, I, I got to ask, because I'm just curious about... Are you about to skip the line? I'm not going to skip the line. I'm going back. I'm, okay. I was going to go back real quick, because James I, M. Tumay was not James, always James M. Tumay. Yes, ma'am. So I just wanted to know what happened in your life and to cause this change, because I, I know it's an activist side of you as yeah. well. There's a whole spiritual... No, know. I'm not. I'm an atheist, but oh, go ahead. Okay. All right. Oh, okay. But always... Uh, since I was 18. Since you was 18. So then the M2 May part. Oh. Well, wait. Since you said that, how can you describe <laughs> in such mm. a vivid terms of of of, of that, orga- that music orgasm that mm. you had with Miles? Such a spiritual experience in a way. And be an atheist. I'm just curious as to, like, none of that was spiritual to you or... Wait, atheists can't be spiritual. That's what I was just thinking yeah. to myself too. Can you be spirit? Can't you be spiritual? I don't know if atheists can be spiritual. Yeah. Isn't atheist no religion, but spiritual? This is a whole other separate thing. I didn't realize that. I thought <laughs> atheists were just or devoid of spirit. I don't <laughs> know. Here's where I started. You know, I was a neophyte when I was 18. You know, man, religion. One day I woke up when I was older, and I said, "Wait a minute, you can't dog." religion and you claim you're an atheist I said they can't prove that God exists to me but I can't prove that it doesn't and I learned to just respect religion whatever you need to get through this thing man so I don't you it's not I respect the word spiritual and all that I'm, I'm just saying but I need to be intellectually honest Amen. stuff coming out of my mouth you might think I'm religious, but I'm saying, no, no, it's not. So I don't know what you would call it. I just know what I know. And I know what I f- the feelings, whatever that, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
In the 1980s, Frank Farian was riding high as a successful German music producer, but he was bored. German pop was formulaic, dull, and oh so white. Frank had bigger dreams, American dreams. He wanted to create the kind of music that would rival larger-than-life artists like Michael Jackson or Run DMC. So he assembled a hip-hop duo, two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? One very important element was missing, but Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's biggest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segui, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Follow Blame It on the Fame wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free by joining Wondery+. Plus. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I have a question um, before we leave the jazz world. Um, Gato. So, oh, man, my man. Yeah, just, I mean, we've been talking a lot about Miles, and I recently sort of realized the what Gato yeah. brought. And can you just speak yes, a little bit I about can. that? Because I, I don't think a lot of people know about him. All right, so I'm at the, sitting at the crib, and Herb Alpert called me. And uh, Herb said, um, Tunes, I want you to come in and make this session with Gato. I'd heard of Gato. I'd heard some of his stuff. But I kind of equated him. He came out. He was coming out of Pharaoh Saunders. Oh. And I had already played with Pharaoh. Mm -hmm. But I remember that when I went to the session, when I walked in, these were the R&B cats. It was Purdy, Pretty Purdy. Pretty Purdy, but not Purdy. I think uh, Eric Gale and uh, Cornell Dupree. And I walked in. Because at that time, Ralph McDonald was the percussionist, ah. you know, in all the sessions. I'm like, I'm coming out of jazz. So I walked in, and it was like, who's this, you know? And I got like a little cold. I didn't mind. I'm setting up. So when I walk in, everybody's like, well, who's this guy? And then Herb walks out from the control booth, tombs! And uh, we hug, and then, you know, obviously everything loosened up. Yeah. And uh, it was a session for Gato. Right after the session, Gato, his wife, she was more like the businessman. She came to me. She said, Gato wanted to know, would, you know, would you be, if you have some time, would you make, you know, this tour? And I said, sure. And so I ended up doing about two or three albums with Gato. Wow. And uh, toured with him. And uh, we, we were really cool. Really cool. That's that was Herb Alpert, though. Yeah, that, but that was that was a later album, maybe, than these, uh, these other ones, like these uh, Flying Dutchman, Bob Thiel. Oh. So, like, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm... I know that that was like a Tommy LaPuma thing you're talking about. Maybe no, the one, with, the first record Herb I played, Alpert. Herb was producing. Yeah. Now you talk about Flying Dutchman. Yeah. I got. I, please allow me. I gotta say it right. Like I said, while it's right here, I actually recorded with Duke Ellington. Wow. Damn. Or flying or, or a Flying Dutchman. <laughs> There's yeah. a Flying Dutchman. I met Duke. 1971. On that first tour, I was talking about with Miles. It was my. It was Miles Davis. It was. Um, George Ween tour for Europe. Miles Davis, Rasan, Roland Kirk, Joe Henderson and Freddie Hubbard, and B.B. King. 
in the same God, the same tour. <laughs> Jesus. Wow. A- I remember one night. Oh, yeah, okay. God, y'all taking me. Oh, this is deep. Take us back, let man. It, let it take you away. I get to the I get to the concert early. One night. So I'm sitting in the room, you know, big dressing room. The door flies open. I look, it's Duke Ellington. I'm like, you know, oh my God. <laughs> and uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't know what to say. Other than Mr. Ellington, you know, and he said, Yeah, son, I like, you know, I like what you're doing. You know, I, I heard you one the other night. And um, I remember I was so awestruck. I just said, Man, Mr. Ellington, tell me what types of music is uh, you know is the best. He said, he said, good. He says only two types of music, good and bad, not genre. Now here's a funny story. One night I missed the bus going back to the hotel. So I catch a ride with the Duke Ellington band because their bus left, you know, uh, later. So I caught, so I'm sitting on this bus, all these cats, man, you know, Harry Carney, Paul Gonzalez. And uh, I think we was a couple months into the tour and I was fried, man, them one-nighters, man. So I was sitting next to Paul Gonzalez and he said, uh, he said, yeah, son, you you know, I said, he said, you look a little tired. I said, man, I'm worn out. He said, man, how long, you know? I said, man, we've been out here almost two months. He said, man, he said, yo, Look at this little punk motherfucker. He said, <laughs> he said, we work 340 days a year for the last 40 years. Good God. <laughs> I got a ride back to the hotel with that. And they just fell out laughing like two like months. Two months, that ain't shit, yeah. Now, while I'm thinking, I got to tell you this. I'm with my, I'm over Miles' house. Kev, remember I was telling you the story coming over. That's my nephew, Kev. Okay. I'm over Miles' house one night, man. I mean, one day, the mail comes. I'm in, in one, see, Miles, one thing, Miles was a great cook. So sometimes he just called, man, come on over, you know, I'm going to fix, you know, he, I mean, hell of a cook. So I'm there, he gets the mail, and I'm, I'm not looking at him. I'm a little over on the side of the room, and he says, oh, shit. And I thought something happened. So I said, what, what's up, brother? He just hands me the mail. It was a Christmas card from Duke Ellington. Wow. But it was in the spring. Miles said, is this the hippest shit you ever seen? He said, no, 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 but here's what it is. He said, Duke is dying. Duke sent all his cats Christmas cards when he was dying. Oh, wow. Brother, I I can't make this up, brother. I can't make that up. And that's one of the things about Jazz cats, just where that Christmas card? I'm I'm splitting. It quest man. It's, it's a Kwanzaa card. Damn. I'm out. He said Kwanzaa card. Yeah. yeah. Kwanzaa. <laughs> Kwanzaa. Kwanzaa. I want everybody to know my man said Kwanzaa. Don't get Fonte. It's like yeah. That's Fonte. Oh, I didn't answer the MTV. You know you did, and I wanted to thank you. I said I'm old man, and if I keep running, it's like having a mirror on the show without a mirror. Good. So. I, I told you I I, I was um, I went out to California to go to school. Yeah, uh, you were a swimmer, right? Yes, How did sir. you get into that? How did... My father, <laughs> you know, one day he came and told me, you know, I'm into I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to the NBA. You know, he said, man, you ain't gonna never be tall. 
<laughs> my whole, you know, okay. So he got me, my brother and myself swimming. Um, and I swam for Vo Vespa Boat Club. Okay. Oh, yeah. In Philly. Yes, Is that sir. the Pride Boys? The the movie? The, the movie? I'm just, listen, I don't know. That's BS. No. The movie? Well, BS? Yeah. That's recreation park swimming. I was AAU. Okay. That's, those are two different things. Oh, you're saying that league was B. Okay. No, no. Yeah, and, what, and what I did not like, they had cats in the movie that couldn't even swim. It's like you watching a movie on basketball and the cats in the movie. Spike Lee moment. Go ahead. Remember Spike Lee said that? Oh, yeah. yeah. So I go out. Uh, this is 66. Uh, this is like, you know, the world was changing. Young, young whites, young blacks, young Latinos. And uh, this is the year I go out there, the year after the Watts Revolt. So that summer, they're having the Watts Summer Festival. And I go to the Watts Cafe, and it was, uh, excuse me, Stokely Carmichael. Back then, Ron Karenga, Marlana Karenga, um, and a couple of other, you know, just... I never heard that language. Well, my, I did hear that language when I was 14. My father took me and my brother to hear Malcolm X okay. open up for Elijah Muhammad. Oh, wow. Whoa. Wow. 1962. I think I was 14. And I had never, I mean, I was, you know, we came home from church and he said, don't, you know, because my thing, after church, this is coming off. I'm going across the street and play <laughs> ball. He said, no, keep your suits on. And I was like, oh, man, we probably got to go to my aunt's, you know, they have Sunday dinner. I was drunk. <laughs> and we're driving. And I looked over and said, tonight, Honorable Elijah Muhammad, Minister Malcolm X, I saw both of them that night. Wow. That was the beginning of my, wow. I'm sorry, go back 66, right? I know. No, no, no. It's all a part so, of that journey. Yeah. So. yeah, so I joined us organization which was uh, Maulana Karanga. And, um, you know, we, we changed our names, man. You know, that was like the first kind of wave going. There was Arabic names, but we started talking about African names, Swahili. And uh, he asked what, what you felt your quality was. That's what, your, that's what your name is based on. So I said, I think I'm supposed to bring something. And he said, and you feel like a message? Well, I said, not literally, you know, he said, no, M2 May. And that's what, it, that's what it means, messenger. Ah, okay. Which I interpreted through the music. Mm. Wow. Deep. Well, we're going through. This is the deepest yeah. ever. Right. I, 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 I wish we were recording this somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so much knowledge. Let me, let me ask it's a like question. It's like a book. So. To ask because like 50, 40, 50, well, 40 years later, you know, the story of Karinga has changed. Yeah. And, and, and people, you know, look at it differently. I mean, the story, we, we've argued in this room about the story of Kwanzaa and significance. Come on, let's yes, get yeah, all yeah, the way yeah, up okay. to the yeah, right. yeah. always on your okay. side. Like, you want to hear or you want to not? I want to hear. Shut up, Bill. I want to hear. All right. I think the first Kwanzaa, I think, was celebrated in, in 66. I wasn't there. It was just a few people. The organization began to kick in because it started to bring, we were all college students coming in. Okay. So my first Kwanzaa is the next year, 67. It's about maybe 30 of us up in somebody's apartment. And everybody's like, them niggas are crazy. <laughs> 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 They're trying, 
They're trying to replace Christmas. Now, look, let me make this clear. Kwanzaa had nothing to do with religion. Talk about it. It was a cultural holiday. Talk about it. Now, let me deal with what's happened to it. People who don't even know what it, what, about Kwanzaa, they want to destroy it. We didn't ask for Kwanzaa. We made it. And that's one of the differences between that and, and like Martin Luther King. I don't, why you got to ask people? Right, do Jews don't ask, can we have Rosh Hashanah? Chinese don't say, can I have Chinese New Year? Yeah. Do it. Self-determination. Mm. But they try to rewrite it now. And then, you know, Karanga went to prison for that. Well, who the fuck created Christmas? Oh, I don't know. Who cares? It was the establishment of a black holiday that's open for anybody. You can be Jew, you can be a Catholic, it don't matter. And that's what people didn't know. And then people started writing what they thought it was. That's the danger of thought. That's crazy. <laughs> and this is the happiest, my <laughs> this is the happiest, most redemptive moment wow. in my ear's yeah. life right, right now. She is so happy. Oh, like, it's right. it's, it's Laia. You just clap right here. Right. It's Laia. Because we know. We do Kwanzaa early. A boy got it. When, when we have the drunken Christmas episode, <laughs> Laia's going to remind all of us to shut up. Remember what you said? Remember what you said? You can separate the message from the messages. Okay, look. Can we get to Epic Records? Yes. How did you? Get <laughs> hold on, before, hold on, before we get over uh, your your solo stuff, like uh, Theater of the Mind and um, uh, that's uh, what we're Rainbow Seekers was that? Those are Friday. That's what we're talking about. Epic. Oh, I didn't know. I thought. Okay, and Bill, bad. I want you to remember this moment. Happy Kwanzaa, Fonte. <laughs> how, did we, <laughs> how did we? Wait. Okay, I, I'm lying because you dropped Pharrell Sanders' names twice, okay. and I'm like, yo, if you're on a creator has a massive Timby plan, is I'm not on that. Okay, that's when I first saw Pharrell. Okay. But I played with Lonnie Liston. Uh, okay. Uh, I went to see Pharaoh. First time I saw him was at the Village Vanguard. It was Pharaoh, Jabali, Billy Hart on drums, Lonnie Liston, Cecil McBee on bass. Was Leon Thomas singing Lee, with him? Then? No, I, that oh. was my last. Oh. And Leon Thomas. Wow. I sat there, man. I'd never heard nothing like that in my life. And the creator has a master plan had just come out. Imam Baraka turned me on to it. And I found out they were playing at the Vanguard. I shot over there. I sat there all night, mesmerized, man. I'd never heard nothing like that. And that was the beginning of that period of the, of the jazz thing. Now, I was into McCoy. Okay. From the first time I heard Train, McCoy, McCoy Tyler, Tyler, man. Yeah. So I played, like I said, on about six albums with McCoy, man. Um, I don't, I don't want to keep repeating that. I'm sorry. Which, nah, no, please, it was, it was, um, these are McCoy albums like on Milestone, like in the early 70s. Man, the label, man. I mean, it's, all, it's, all, it's on, you know, if you type it up, it's on YouTube. Uh, I can't remember the label, man, that he was. Strata East? Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I was on Strata. Okay. Um, McCoy's was, was Milestone around, around that time. I don't know if it was Milestone. You, you, you might be right. It was definitely Monster. The Song okay. for My Lady album. Yeah, that album is the Song for My Lady. You're on that? I, I, brother? <laughs> I can't, if you say so, he I is. Can't, I can't remember them. You are. Discogs.com yeah. says he is. But uh, now, let's get to yeah, right. Epic, rec <laughs> epic Records. <laughs> no more jazz questions. I, but you know we're going to go back to it. Of course. Um, yeah, so what brought you to, was it... Was Larkin Arnold there at the time? Or? No. 
Who brought you to, to, to um, Sony? Or back then, CBS? Okay, well, with Reggie and I, Reggie Lucas and I were partners. And, uh, and why'd y'all stay together? Why'd you guys decide, let's partner up and be a team? Success. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that, I mean, you know, I, I don't mean monetarily. I mean, you, we were nourishing. Yeah. You know, the music, we were, we were very proud of the music we were doing. What was the division of labor uh, between you two in terms of writing and Those music who know don't say, those who say don't know. <laughs> I don't do that. Because that gets into. Well, no, no, no. We meant like who did the music, who did the lyrics. Oh really? Nice. I'm not going there. Is that so? No, but what we're what we're actually asking. <laughs> you. Well, first, first of all, I already said. Crazy. I already said closer. I said I was working on these chords. So we shared. You know, it depends on the song. Yeah. Well, we were partners. Yeah, all partners. Okay. All right. So it sounded okay. like Two Hearts by Stephanie, Me, like which is one of my favorite songs. Well, actually. We co-wrote that with Tawatha, Tawatha Ah, Asia. okay. Um, and you know what? Damn, that's interesting. Because me and Tawatha were just talking about this the other day. For those that don't know, Tawatha A.G. was our lead singer, you know, in the Imtune yeah. band, both versions. And um, I don't remember how it became a duet. We didn't write it as a duet. I don't even know. Shep Gordon, probably. <laughs> no, no, no. Because no. both of those were his clients. No, so. no, no, no. Wait a minute. Okay, there's a story here. Ah, Shep story. So Shep is managing Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Me, and Step, me, me and Shep get cool. You're probably right. I think that's how it came Because <laughs> <laughs> Teddy was his client uh, as well. Yeah, exactly. So we're recording Two Hearts. Teddy comes in up at Sigma in New York. That's where we yeah. recorded. Mm-hmm. So I'm putting on do 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 because I always liked little melodic hooks in the in our songs. You know, I put uh, uh like juicy do 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 just little things. You know. Ah, and now so that you say that, I, I, yeah. something about you know how to love me. Yeah. And. Um, so Teddy said, man, I'm, man, Tombs, you know, I love, I want to work with you, man. So, you know, we, we were just kicking it. I get a call from Kenny Gamble and Shep. Shep said, man, look, can you and Vance come down? We want to have a meeting in Philly. With you, with the, he said, me and Leon Huff and uh, Shep. So, we, you know, we set a date. We rolled down. So Kenny says, look, man. I want you to do half of the next Teddy Pendergrass album. So it'd be Gamble and Huff on one side A, and two May Lucas side B. I'm like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, cause just the. And this is after, what, what period is this? What was the last Teddy album before? I, I, before the crash? I guess I should ask y'all that. Yeah, yeah, 81 was. Exactly uh, before the, the so crash. Right before. Oh, this is after, well, obviously. What's the silver at, album cover? Um, it's after, it's after, song it's after Two Hearts, whatever. Yeah, okay. yeah. Right. So I'm like, oh man. Teddy has the accident maybe about three weeks later. So it's just something that never, never happened. But really? Where, where was I going with that? Um, oh, yeah, that was going to, the next album was going to be, and oh, I, I want to say something. Like Gamble and Huff was one of my inspirations. Kenny, Kenny is one of my best friends in the music. I first met Kenny 
on the phone in 1968. Okay. I was heading up, getting the entertainment together for the Watt Summer Festival. I'm calling all over, everybody, Motown, you know, try to get somebody to donate some artists. I said, man, what's this cat in Philly, man? I call Philly International. I'm in LA. I said, can I speak to Kenny Gamble? I mean, I'm- Just cold. <laughs> I mean, Just cold I call. Receptionist, <laughs> like, I have you. And she said, well, who is this? I said, my name is Mtume. Um, I work for the Watts Summer Festival. I be trying to get talent. She said, hold on. About 30 seconds later, Kenny picks up. I'm like, oh. It was that easy. <laughs> we talked. He sent out the intruders. I think it was Hal Melvin and somebody else to LA to perform at the Watts Summer Festival for nothing. That's dope. Wow. He paid for them. Well, we paid for the transportation, okay. but All right, the, the, the services yeah, were free. free. So that's when he and I first talked. I wasn't even writing music then. And you didn't even know him from Philly. That's crazy. No, 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 I didn't know him. He's from South Philly. Mm -hmm. Good no, I didn't know him. So we're having this meeting, and I'll never forget. Look, Leon Huff is the most. <laughs> so Kenny's saying, it was beautiful. He said, this way, when we're working, you can lean on us, and we can lean on you. Huff has not said nothing for like an hour and a half. Quiet, <laughs> is And then he does this. Quest. He says, no. He said, no leaning. And I went back to the studio and wrote that on the wall. That was one of the rules. No leaning. No leaning. He said one thing in an hour and a half, but it was so <laughs> impactful. Oh, God, now I'm about to break my own rule. Going back to jazz. <laughs> no, because the thing is, I don't like what's what's the chances of us actually having someone that was like actively in in there for the Watts riots, like oh, to? Yeah. I got there the year after. Oh, you yeah. came afterwards. Yeah, then we yeah. can skip that. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right, y'all. That wraps up part one of our interview with the great James Tume. Come back next week and uh, we will talk to James about his work with Stephanie Mills and Phyllis Hyman, his thoughts on sampling, scoring the 90s TV drama New York Undercover, and the late great Donnie Hathaway. Until then, check out Mix Suprema for a sampling of James's work with artists like Miles Davis, Sonny Rollins, OJs, uh, Roberta Flack, Bilal, Mary J. Blige, plus some recent hits that have sampled his songs. So stay tuned for next week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. This is Questlove Supreme, only on Pandora. Quest Love Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. This classic episode was produced by the team at Pandora. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. 
Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 